In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a good and gracious king. He is your son, the Lord Christ. We delight in him. We enjoy having him rule over us. We confess, Lord, that we are prone to seek out other monarchs who are not kind and who will not do us good. Lord, as we study the story of Abimelech today, I pray that we would learn from this narrative. I pray that we would avoid the errors, the sins, the mistakes that the people made with respect to him. And I pray that our affections and our allegiance would go to the Christ, Lord, that we would love him more today than we have ever loved him. Uh, This is something, Lord, that you must do for us by your spirit, and we ask for the glory of your son that you would indeed do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Judges 21, 25, it says that in in, in those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This particular verse anticipates that there will be a monarch, one who will rule the people well and bring order and civility and stability to the people of God. And we know, of course, that that king is Jesus. And the need for that king, I believe, is seen most clearly in the book of Judges in our chapter today, which is chapter 9, the story of Abimelech. We're studying the book of Judges chapter by chapter, and today we are going to study chapter 9. Now, please remember that the book of Judges is repetitive. There is a cycle which begins with sin. It is followed by suffering, and then comes prayer or supplication where the people cry out to God. That is followed by a deliverer which helps them, salvation. There's a period of solace, but sadly after that, Sin repeats itself and the people forget about God and the cycle continues. Judges chapter 9 takes a break from that pattern. Uh, I would classify Judges chapter 9 as sort of a disjointed halftime show for the book of Judges, where you have roughly half the Judges appearing before chapter 9 and roughly half the Judges appearing after chapter 9. Ironically, this chapter today isn't even really dealing with one of the Judges. Uh, It is the sad story of a man by the name of Abimelech who happens to be the son of one of the Judges. And he declares himself uh, not to be a Judge, but he declares himself to be a King, although he really wasn't. The point of Judges chapter 9 is that this man who is the son of Gideon sets himself up to be king. But that entire thing is a break from our repetitive cycle. You also need to remember that the book of Judges is rough. When I was walking out of my office this morning into the worship center, Keith Allen asked me the question, is today's story rated R or PG-13? You see, in those days, human life had very little value, and brutality was common. Today's story is very, I would even say excessively barbaric. Remember also that the book of Judges is rhetorical. Now, everything in it is true. The stories actually happened, but they are recorded very artfully with a lot of wordplay and a lot of symbolism, and we will even see that in the chapter today. And most importantly, we need to remember that the book of Judges is redemptive. It's a story of God being good to bad people. Uh, However, I'm going to have to confess to you up front that finding redemption is a bit challenging in chapter 9, as you shall soon see, uh, because the character of this chapter is really that of a very low-life man. Uh, But we're going to try to do that. So Judges chapter 9 is a very long chapter. It's 57 verses in length. I've already preached this uh, sermon once this morning in between services. I asked my wife, is there anything about it that you would like me to change? And she said... The story is very hard to follow, so I will do better and try to use more simplicity in describing the story, but I would say to you, please employ your powers of concentration to try to follow the story, as I think she's right. It is a 
long chapter and a hard story to follow. We're not going to be able to read all of it. I will summarize some of the sections, but we will also be reading some of it. Uh, the chapter is unusual in that there is not a lot of information in this chapter about God. In fact, the word Yahweh does not appear in the chapter at all, and the word God only appears a handful of times. But even though God is not front and center verbally in this chapter, his fingerprints are all over the narrative. Another interesting thing about this chapter is that it is not really dealing with the Jewish people at all. You have this man, Abimelech, whose father was an Israelite. His father is Gideon, but his mother is a Shechemite, and he himself does not identify with God's people at all. He identifies with the Shechemites, who are Gentiles or Canaanites. So it's essentially a Gentile story, and it really illustrates how the Canaanites have influenced the people of God rather than the other way around. The setting to this story occurs in Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. And in that, we meet a man by the name of Gideon. And he is given a tremendous victory over Israel's enemies, the Midianites. Uh, This man, Gideon, started off very humble. God used him greatly. However, this man, Gideon, did not deal with success very well. He became arrogant. Um, verbally, he said all of the right things. They asked him to be their king, but he refused. But in actuality, he lived like a king. His actions said that he wanted to be a king. He named his son Abimelech, whose name means my father is king. He had a harem of women and had about 70 children. So he's living like a king. And one of Gideon's sons, the one we're going to deal with today, Abimelech, he is our our focus today. His mother is not even the wife of Gideon. She is one of his concubines. She is not a Jewish woman. She's a Shechemite. uh, And he is probably raised there, and he is probably raised even apart from his brothers and sisters. Um, Gideon, in his lifetime, he saw rest, and he saw prosperity. But Gideon's legacy, that which happened after his life was over, uh, is a sad mess. The aftermath of Gideon's life is just horrible, as our story will show today. Uh, The outline for today's message is very simple. Um, Point number one is simply the story. This is not a well-known story, so we're going to take some time to go through it to make sure that you know the facts of the story. And point number two is the significance. What is the significance of this story? So point number one, the story, let's begin by reading verses one through nine. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, went to Shechem uh, to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the years of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So he goes to his family and he says to his family, I want you to go to the town fathers of Shechem and asked them a question. Would you rather have me, one of your relatives, ruling over you, or would you rather have the 70 sons of Gideon who are not even living here ruling over you? Verse 3, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts, that is the hearts of the town fathers, were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So, yeah, this is good. We would rather have him to be our leader. Verse 4. So here's what they did. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows to who followed him. So what he does is he gets money from an idol's house. He uses that money to hire mercenaries to follow him. What do they do? Verse 5, and he went out to his father's house at Ophrah. That is in the region of the people of God in Israel. That is where Gideon was raised. That is where Gideon was called. That is where Gideon's family lived. He went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. So first of all, how do you, how do you get all of them together? 
How do you get them such that they are not going to resist when one after another is being killed, not in separate locations, but in one location? There must have been a lot of money involved here. There must have been a lot of mercenaries involved in order to round up 70 men and kill them all in one place. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself. They were able to kill everybody except for one person, and this is Jotham. Verse 6. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Hey, this is wonderful. He has taken out all those people. What does he get as his reward for that? Well, he gets to be our king. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So what has happened here is, uh, first of all, these 70 sons of Gideon, they posed no threat to Shechem whatsoever. That uh, They were not going to harm them in any way. People of Shechem act foolishly. They give the money so that Abimelech can go and he can execute all of his siblings. One of them escapes, and now this one is coming back, and he is going to give a speech on top of Mount Gerizim to the people of uh, the, the people of Shechem. Uh, let me explain, first of all, a little bit about Shechem. Um, it was prominent in the book of Genesis because this is the place where God first appeared to Abraham when he came into the land of Canaan. And as we go through the book of Genesis, we, we find that it was a place where Joseph and his brothers were. It was a place where they were at once with peace with the children of Israel until they had done something bad to one of Jacob's, to Jacob's daughter, Dinah. So th- th- this place plays a prominent role in the book of Genesis. And, 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 and interestingly, geographically, you have two mountains which were really important in the history of God's people, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And God told the Israelites back in the book of Deuteronomy, when you go into the land, I want you to situate six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other, and I want the men on Mount Ebal, that is six tribes, I want them to yell out covenant curses from the book of Deuteronomy. And then from Mount Gerizim, I want six tribes gathered there to yell out or to scream out covenant blessings. Well, interestingly, between these two mountains, in the valley in between, that's where Shechem is. And this young man, Jotham, goes up to Mount Gerizim, ironically, not to yell out covenant blessings, but to yell out covenant curses. He's the one who escapes, and he is going to speak now to the people of Shechem. Now, before I read verses 8 through 21, I want you to know that what Jotham is about to say is really a prophecy and it is a parable. And he's going to use the metaphor of trees. And in the end, it's going to be the bramble that is the tree. Uh, Bramble is just kind of like a a good-for-nothing bush. You can't get any shade from a bramble. There are thorns there. It is, it is, it is quick to catch on fire and, and fire spreads quickly through a bramble. So he's going to liken Abimelech to a bramble. But, but hear the, hear the parable and listen to how he uh, speaks to them beginning in verse eight as he's, he's yelling out to the people of Shechem. Verse eight. Here's the parable. The trees went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance uh, by which gods and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? I don't want to be your king. I'm not going to leave what I'm doing now to be your king. Verse 10, and the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go and hold sway over the trees? I don't want to leave what I'm doing now and become your king. Verse 12, and the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go and hold sway over the trees? The vine says, I don't want to be your king. Then all the trees said to the bramble, to the ugly little good-for-nothing thorny bush. They said to the bramble, 
you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, if you insist you want me to be your king, then come and take refuge in my shade, which is very ironic because a bramble bush does not produce any shade at all. But he says, come and I will give you, I will give you shade. But if not, if you will not comply with what I say, uh, this is the bramble telling them right up front, let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. In other words, if you mess with me, you will have messed with the wrong king. Verse 16, he is moving away from the metaphor now, and he is speaking very sarcastically in a really snarky way to the people of Shechem. Remember, all of his siblings are dead at this point, and here's what he says beginning in verse 16. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and the house and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, like, wait, are you, are you kidding me? This is so sarcastic. They didn't act in good faith when they killed all of Gideon's children. And then he goes into this parenthetical section where he talks about how wonderful his father was. And his father indeed was wonderful. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have raised up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant. That woman that is his mother wasn't even married to my father. She was a concubine. She was his servant. You've made him king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. Verse 19. If then you have acted in good faith, and of course they haven't, but if then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. In other words, if this thing is all above board and you think it was the right thing to do, well, congratulations, verse 20. But if not, here's the prophecy of Jotham. If not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. In other words, may he destroy you and may you destroy him. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer or Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. We do not know where Beer is but it can be said that this man went away and hid in his beer, and people have been doing that ever since. Wow, that's, that's the best I have for you today, okay? That was the top of the mountain right there. No love, no love. <clears throat> this man is not going to offer you any protection, but he's going to devour you. You haven't acted in good faith. So he runs away and he hides and we are to believe he successfully hides. When we get to verses 22 through 24, this is where I need to pay, I need to ask you to pay close attention. They are important verses because they teach us important truths. And here are the important truths that we learn from verses 22 through 24. First of all, we learn that God is the one who causes Abimelech and the city of Shechem to be at odds with one another. And number two, more importantly, we learn from these verses that God is acting in order to bring about justice or retribution upon Abimelech and upon Shechem because 70 of his children or brothers have been murdered. Listen as I read verses 22 through 24. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And by the way, when when I said earlier that this guy was a king, he wasn't really a king. He was more of just like a local, regional warlord. Israel never recognized him as their king. But he ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit. Here's God acting. An evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So there's going to be a rift here between Abimelech and the city of Shechem. And God is the one that caused it. And now the important point, why is it happening? It is happening that or so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill 
his brothers. In other words, God is out to get both Abimelech and the city of Shechem. And the breach starts in verse 25, where the trade route is, is, is now no longer safe. Look at verse 25. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. So how does it start? Well, it starts in this way. The people of Shechem say, hey, you know what? There's a lot of travelers who are going by our territory, and, and they're, they're carrying a lot of goods. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to send people from the city out, and as these merchants travel by, we are going to ambush them. We're going to steal their goods. Well, why is that bad for Abimelech? Because he's supposed to be king of this territory. He's supposed to be keeping it safe. And because he can't keep it safe, that is a black eye on him. And this probably hurts his pocketbook. But it gets worse as we come to verses 26 through 29, which I will summarize. And there was a man by the name of Gaul. And the best way to remember him is that he had a lot of Gaul. And he plans to overthrow the government of Abimelech and to make himself king. And so he forms this little coup army and, and, and he wants them to overthrow Abimelech. So this guy Gaul uh, waits for a very strategic time in order to pe- speak to the people of Shechem. He speaks to them while they are drunk at a feast and, and he essentially says to them, I want you to join me and I want you to overthrow Abimelech and I want you to put me in power. So there was a guy in Shechem, I would say he probably was the equivalent to the mayor or he was the vice regent, he was a friend of Abimelech, Abimelech is not living in Shechem at this time, and he is listening to Gaul influence a group of people within the city to overthrow Abimelech, and he is on Abimelech's side, he gets angry at Gaul, and so what he does is he secretly sends a message to Abimelech, and he says, we got trouble right here in River City. We have trouble. So what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to put your army together. You're going to need to come against Shechem. When you come against Shechem, Gaul and his army will come out and they will meet you. You will have the element of surprise. I want you to sneak in in the middle of the night. You will have the element of surprise. And when Gaul and his coup army go out of Shechem to fight you, you can dispose of him. You can do with him whatever you want. So... Abimelech gets the message, he puts an army together, he puts it into four different sections, and they come in the middle of the night to attack and to fight Gaul and his little coup army. As they are making their way down towards Shechem, something really strange happens in verses 34 through 36, as if the rest of this isn't strange, but there's some really strange things going on here in verses 34 through 36. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. When Gaul saw the people... He said to Zebul, remember that guy? He's like the mayor, the vice regent who's, who's out there with him while it's still dark. He says, look. People are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. <laughs> Gaul is standing there. He's looking out. It's, it's, it's still dark. And as he's looking out, he sees movement coming down the mountain. He turns to Zebul, who he thinks is on his side, and says, I think we've got trouble here. I think we're, we're being attacked. And Zebul says, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, okay? Those aren't really men coming down the mountain. Those are just shadows, moon shadows, moon shadows. You're being followed by a moon shadow, Cat Stevens, 1970. Finally, when the dawn comes and Gaul can see, those are not shadows, those are actually real soldiers coming against me, Zebul changes his strategy. He turns to Gaul and says, let's see what kind of a man you are now. You were speaking out against Abimelech. Let's see if you can defeat him. Go out and fight against him. So 
gall, gets the gall, to leave Shechem with his little army, and he goes out against Abimelech, and he loses miserably. He, he gets chased away. He gets defeated. He gets driven back. He gets chased away. The next day, the people in Shechem think, okay, there was this little uprising, but now life is going to go back to normal. Uh-uh. Life doesn't go back to normal with Abimelech. And so when the farmers go out in the field and they try to do their work, well, guess what happens? Abimelech comes along with one of his regiments and he kills all the farmers in the field. And then he goes against the city of Shechem. Now, this is a guy who is cutting off his nose to spite his face. And you will find often who people who are, who are, uh, people who violently take control of a situation, they will do anything to defend their territory. They will even do rash things. Look at what Abimelech does to the city who supported him, who put him in power in verse 45. And Abimelech fought against the city. Well, just hold right there. That is his city. That is the city that put him into power. That is his capital. The whole city wasn't against him. It was just this one little group that Gaul put together. That doesn't matter to Abimelech. He is coming against the city. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city, killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. He went in, he killed everybody, he knocked down all the buildings, and in order to spite them, he takes salt and he throws it on the ground so that nothing will grow. I am totally ticked off, and you people are going to pay for it. But he's not done. Apparently, there was a fortress which was associated with Shechem, but that fortress was not actually in Shechem itself. And so the aristocracy of the city, about a thousand people, the leaders of the city, they are able to escape before Abimelech levels the city and they run to this tower. Notice what happens when they run to this tower in verses 46 through 50. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Berith. Abimelech was told that the that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So he gets word that some people have escaped and they have gone into this fortress. Verse 48. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who are with him. Probably that's where the tower is. We're not exactly sure. It's in proximity to Shechem, but we're not exactly sure. But it's a little bit away from Shechem. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. Do you know what that brushwood is that he cut down with that axe? Bramble. Bramble. The prophecy is coming true. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Remember the prophecy of Jotham? This bramble is going to set you on fire. He literally takes the bramble puts it around this tower, sets it on fire, and all of them die. His next target was a place called Thebes. Now, apparently the people of Thebes had helped the coup group in Shechem and Gaul, and this was about 10 miles away, and so now this man, Abimelech, is going against them. And so he marches the 10 miles to Thebes, and, and they also have a tower. And again, the people are in the tower. And once again, uh, Abimelech tries to employ the bramble fire method of setting the tower on fire. But this time he gets uh, a little bit careless, verses 52 through 57. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman, we don't even know her name, a certain woman 
threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. So you need to kill me so it can be said that a man killed me because I don't want it to be known that a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Bring God back into the picture. God has never left the picture. He's always been involved in the picture. But now once again, we're, we're, we're finding out why and how all of this happened with the word thus, verse 56. Here's, 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 here's the impetus. Here's why it all happens. Thus, God returned or brought retribution for the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God, this is God is the one that is the primary actor in this narrative, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their own heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, or Gideon. Retribution. Well, that's the story. Now, I have never preached a sermon on this passage. In fact, I have never heard a story preached from this particular text of Scripture. Um, I, in fact, want to be honest with you. I would say probably in studying this week, about 99% of the information in this chapter or more was stuff that I did not remember at all. Um, it's not because I have a bad memory, because I have a pretty good memory, and it's not because I don't read the Bible, because I do read the Bible. But I think there's a reason why I, I, I really don't remember very much about this chapter, and the reason I think is this, because there is absolutely, and when I say absolutely, I mean absolutely, there is absolutely nothing in this chapter which is praiseworthy. You do not walk away from this chapter saying, amen, hallelujah, wasn't that beautiful? There is absolutely no example to follow. Now, you might have, if you're a really good Bible student, you might have remembered that there's a story in the Bible somewhere where someone was killed by someone dropping a stone on their head. Maybe you remember that. But be honest with yourself. Did you really remember that this happened in Judges chapter 9 and that the one who was killed was the son of Gideon? If you do, I mean, that, that's great. I mean, I, I'm not chastising you if you do remember it. I'm just saying I didn't remember that. Now, there is no excuse for not knowing the Bible because all of the Bible is the Word of God. There is a God. This God has chosen to communicate. The means by which he has chosen to communicate is through his Word, and in his Word is this story, and this Word is pro- pro- profitable. This Word is important. I don't like it when people say of anything in the Bible, well, that's not really important. No, it is all important. But will you grant me that there is an obvious and apparent lack of virtue in this chapter. In fact, it is palpable just how bad everybody in this chapter is. So I want you to know the story, because the story is in the Bible, but I also want you to be honest and say, on the surface, there really isn't that much to cheer about. But you needed to know the story. Now, That brings us to point number two, what is the significance of the story? And I will say for point number two, you really need to put on your thinking cap in order to see the significance. If you think it was hard to follow the story, it's even harder to find something in the story which is redeemable. But I think we can find a few things. So let's move to point number two, the significance. Why is the story included in the Bible? Let me make three observations. Observation number one, it demonstrates our, when I say our, I mean all of us as fallen sons of Adam, it demonstrates our inexplicable appetite for bad leadership. This story demonstrates our inexplicable appetite for bad leadership. You tell me, how does a man like Abimelech get into a position of power. 
I think it starts off by the people of God not being very good at history and the people of God not being grateful. If you go back to chapter 8, this is the end of the life of Gideon, the father of Abimelech. It, it talks about how the people have forgotten about God and how they forgot about Gideon. Look at chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. And the people of Israel did not remember. They failed history. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon. They they, they were not grateful for what he did in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Gideon had been pretty good to those people in delivering them from the Midianites, but they had forgotten the Midianite oppression. And I think that if they had studied their history and they had remembered who Gideon was and how Gideon had delivered them and they had remembered God's kindness in using Gideon, I don't think that they would have been quick to kill 70 of Gideon's children. And they would not have listened to someone who suggested that all of Gideon's children be slaughtered. Or at least... Abimelech's children. And here's the thing. I'm sorry, Abimelech's siblings. Here's the thing. Gideon's children posed no threat to Shechem at all. And yet they listened to Abimelech and they killed Gideon's children. If they had done just a little bit of research, they would have seen that these people were no threat at all. You see, bad leaders, listen to me good, they are not concerned with facts, they are not concerned with logic, they are not concerned with history, they are not concerned with truth. I was in Minsk in Belarus, former USSR, in a museum known as the Museum of the Great Patriotic War. In the former USSR, they call what we call World War II, they call it the Great Patriotic War. As we're making our way through this museum, there's a lady who is assigned, she speaks English, she's assigned to take us from display to display and to explain them. And about halfway through the museum, I raise my hand and I say, I have a question. Real simple, yes or no? Joseph Stalin, good guy or bad guy? Her response was, it all depends on how you look at it because Stalin was the one that led the USSR when they fought against the Nazis. It all depends on how you look at it. There was a man with us who was from the church there in Minsk, and he piped in and he said to the woman, Joseph Stalin killed both of my grandparents. It all depends on how you look at it. For crying out loud, Joseph Stalin was not a good man doesn't depend on how you look at it. He was a very bad man. He was a very bad man. And one of the marks that people have drifted from God and that they put their trust in evil and incompetent leadership is that they don't know how to discern between a good leader and a bad leader. And their lack of gratitude leaves them in a place where they are susceptible to great expressions of stupidity. Uh, Joseph, I'm going to go back to the, to the parable and the prophecy of Jotham. Again, let me read chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. Jotham says, as he's standing on that mountain, screaming out at the people of Shechem, if you then have acted in good faith, and he knows that they haven't, if then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. Up in verse 18. And you have risen against my father's house this day and have killed his sons. Seventy men on one stone have made, uh, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, the king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. He, he, Jotham points it out. You have acted really badly. You get to the end of any story. You get to the end of any reign. You look back over your shoulder, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. And And in hindsight, you can look back at any leader and say, you know what, I should have recognized that. I should have seen that he or she was not that good. I mean, really, 
What do you think, like right up front, about the moral fitness of a man who arranges for 70 of his siblings to be murdered when they pose no threat whatsoever? It is not like Abimelech in any way was deceptive. He just came right out and right in your face. Here's my plan to be king. I want to kill 70 of my siblings. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. How do you think this man is going to govern when he is put over you, when he would kill 70 of his family members? Do you think that he's going to govern society with justice and mercy? Let's take Adolf Hitler as an example. Hitler, throughout the 1930s, was saying things which were absurd and ridiculous, cruel and barbaric. He never made it a secret that he wanted to rule the world. What does Time Magazine do in 1938? They make Adolf Hitler the person of the year. One author, a man by the name of William Shearer, wrote about the Nazi party celebration in Nuremberg, which happened in 1934. And, and, and this particular author, speaking about Adolf Hitler and his ability to influence, said this. He said, the words he uttered, and the thoughts he expressed often seemed to me ridiculous. Like if I'm just sitting here listening to him saying, wait, am I hearing him right? That sounds really ridiculous. But that week, at that celebration of the Nazi party in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but what mattered was how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately and deepened in, and, and it deepened and it intensified as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. He goes on to say that in that state, it seemed to me that they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. In my mind, I would exclaim, what utter rubbish. And then I would look around at the audience. His German listeners were lapping up every word as utter truth, end quote, and oh no. Those people helped him kill six million Jews. But he wasn't hiding it. It was right out front. Now we look at Shechem and we say, how could you make this scoundrel, your leader. I mean, he's telling you up front that he wants to kill 70 of his family members. That's horrible, isn't it? It is, yes. I'd like to tell you what's worse. It's when an American politician, and I'm not thinking of anyone specifically, I'm just speaking generally of how politics work in our country, it's when an American politician who is running for public office will tell you right up front that he or she is in favor of giving a woman the legal right to murder her unborn child. Or they will not use that language. They will put it in the form of giving the woman a choice. But, but, but there's, there, there, there is no deception involved whatsoever. I would like your vote. Here's what I would like you to know about me. I am in favor of giving the woman a right to mutilate the baby that is in her womb and to extract it and to stop its beating heart. I am in favor of that. Vote for me, and I will do everything I can to support that. Okay, this guy, Abimelech, he kills 70 of his family members. He sets fire to another thousand people. I mean, he's, he's one rough dude. You know what's worse? It's when we legally kill 63 million babies in the United States since 1973. And let me just say this. I am not saying that just because a politician says that they are pro-life, that they are a good leader or that they will be good for the people. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is if someone will be upfront with you and tell you that it is acceptable for them to promote 
the murder of children, shame on us for casting a vote for that person. They're telling you, just like Abimelech did right up front, that they are in favor of something that is hideously bad. That person being elected in the land of the free, I don't understand that. You see, as fallen sons and daughters of Adam, we are not skilled by nature at selecting or approving good leadership. Let me give you another application. Young ladies, before you say, I do, I would encourage you to seek out godly experienced wisdom and get confirmation from wise sources as to whether or not others think that the man that you are selecting to be your husband will be a good leader. For if you marry a bad leader, you will pay for it for the rest of your life. So please, and look, I'm all in favor of being in love. I think it's a wonderful thing. But please do not allow the emotion of love to blind you to the realities of an ungodly husband who is a bad leader. And I could give many more examples. We, in our fallen state, are prone to pick and to follow bad leaders. That is illustrated in Judges chapter 9. Here is the second observation from Judges chapter 9, and that is that it demonstrates the certainty of retribution or payback for the wicked. It demonstrates the certainty of retribution for the wicked from God himself. I think you are familiar with the classic verses in the Bible on the subject of retribution. One of them is Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Another one comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. It is spoken to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And it is said to them in Numbers 32, 23, Be sure, be sure of this one thing. Be sure your sin will find you out. That is illustrated in Judges chapter 9. And I want you to notice once again, and I've said it before, and I I don't apologize for saying it now, the active role that God himself plays in bringing about the demise of Abimelech and Shechem. It's unambiguous. God is the one that is acting. Again, look with me, please. And if you have your own Bible, you should be marking these verses down, underlining them, verses 23 and 24. And God, G-O-D, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Why were they opposed to one another? Because God set them at odds against one another. Verse 24, why was it done that or so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them and their blood be on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. It is God that is acting. You get to the end of the book, the end of the story, and again, the author makes it really clear that God is the one that is acting. Verses 56 and 57. And thus, that word thus means that everything happens up to this point because God is the one that is acting. And thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. So he not only did wrong to them by killing them, but he did wrong to the legacy of his father by killing his father's children. And 57. And God, once again, the primary actor in this chapter, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return turn on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Remember I said at the outset of the message that this chapter isn't really dealing with one of the judges. Well, that's not quite true, because there is a judge who is at work in this chapter, and that judge is God. And he uses a variety of entities to bring about his purposes. He uses the prophecy or the parable of Jotham to, to insult and adds insult to injury when the prophecy of Jotham is fulfilled. I mean, can you imagine you're in Shechem? This guy, who's supposed to be your king, comes, and he kills everybody that's in sight in the city. He takes down all the buildings, and then he's throwing salt on the ground, and you're running away to this tower, and you climb in this tower along with 999 other people, and you think that you're safe, and then here he comes with his army, And he's not carrying a sword, and he's not carrying a spear, and he doesn't have a bow and arrow, 
He doesn't have a catapult, anything. He has a bush over his shoulder. He is carrying a shrubbery. And he comes up and he puts it at the base of the tower. And then he rubs some sticks together and he starts a fire and the bramble starts to burn. And as it is getting hotter and hotter and as the smoke is rising and you are dying and you have nowhere to go, the only thing that you can remember was that there was this young man who stood on this mountain and he says, if you've acted in good faith, let it be well with you. But if you haven't, please know this. A fire is going to come out of that bramble that you elected to be your king and he is going to burn you. And so what was a figurative parable now literally is coming true. The only thing that you can think is the word of God which was preached from that mountain is now burning me to death. God uses this man gall. God uses the robbers on the, 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 the path. God, God uses everything. God uses a woman with a, with, 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 with a, with a millstone. What's a millstone? It's, it's kind of like, like, if you ever go to the gym, I do not. You can look at me and tell I don't go to the gym. But, but like, you know, when you go to the gym, you have like the, 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 the like a bench press. There's like a pole, right? And then on either end, there's like this round thing with a hole in the middle and you just, put one on one side, you put one on the other. Well, that's about the size of a millstone. Enough so that if one is dropped from a tower on your head, it will kill you. God uses a millstone. God uses an unnamed woman to do this. Compound this with the fact that God uses an unnamed woman. Isn't it crazy that we don't know her name? And isn't it crazy that this guy is dying and he is so vain that he doesn't care about repenting, he doesn't care about getting right with God. The only thing that he cares about at this point is his own reputation. May it never be said of me that a woman killed me. And this is the theme in the book of Judges. Do you remember that when Deborah says to Barak, you better go take care of Sisera and his army? And Barak says, yeah, I'll go if you'll go with me. And Deborah says, all right, I'll go with you. But you're not going to get the glory from the battle. It's going to be given to a woman, and that was given to Jael, who put the tent peg through Sisera's head. When we get to Judges chapter 16, we are going to see that a woman defeated the strongest man who ever lived. Delilah defeated Samson, and here it is a woman that takes him out, which he, which he's just obsessed with the shame of that. Every week I tell you the judges is rhetorical. How about this one? Here is, I think, the most beautiful expression of rhetoric in the book of Judges. In chapter 9, verse 5, they killed the sons of Gideon on one stone at Ophrah. And when you get to Judges chapter 9, verse 53, Abimelech's head was crushed by one stone. What goes around comes around. This is boomerang theology. George Swab puts it this way. One woman with one stone ends the bloodthirsty tyrant's rule which began on one stone. God would not allow the evil of Abimelech to stand despite the entirely secular character of this long chapter. That's just a fancy way of saying you read this story and there doesn't seem to be anything in it which is religious at all. It just seems like a secular story. And Schwab says, no, it's not secular at all. He goes on to write, in the end, we see that it was religious and spiritual the whole time. It it, it, it is about the moral and spiritual and religious principles which govern how events transpire. God put a bad spirit between Abimelech and Shechem. God punished Shechem and Abimelech for their evil. Even this story is about who the true judge is. And as I said earlier, there is a judge here, and God is that judge. And God has said, I will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. And your sin will find you out. And so I ask you today by way of application, do you believe in God's omniscience? Like, Do you believe that he knows what is going on in the darkness? Do you think he sees what you are doing? Do you think he knows what you are thinking? Do you believe in God's justice and God's wrath, which are going to be revealed on the day of judgment? 
Do you believe that somehow you will escape? I honestly think that Abimelech and Shechem thought that they would be okay. But I will tell you that if Abimelech could come back right now and share the pulpit with me, he would preach to you and he would say to you, retribution is real, God's justice is inescapable, God is not mocked. So how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation as that is asked in Hebrews 2, 3? The implied answer is that we shall not. Not only is this a a word to those who are running from God in their sin and they think that they're getting away with it, but this is also a word of comfort for those who have been oppressed. As Providence would have it, in our first service today, Noel Reed was here with his wife, Brenda, and their son, Joseph, You know, it was 43 years ago this month in the Bronx uh, that Noel's father was shot to death. And to this day, nobody knows who did it. It, it, There has been in this lifetime no justice. God knows who did it. And whoever did it, If they are still alive, they are certain by this time that they have gotten away with it. But they are mistaken. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will take care of it. It's not only a comfort for those who have been wronged, but it is a warning for those who are guilty. Please stop deceiving yourself that you can successfully run from God. Your best bet at this point would be to turn yourself in and say to God, I am guilty. I'm tired of running, I fear you, please have mercy upon me, and I have good news for you today, that good news is the gospel, and that is, he will have mercy upon you, but you need to turn to him right now. That mercy will be found in the fact that his son died to pay for our sins on the cross, and that he rose again to be our forgiving savior. And so, you go to Jesus, you go to him right now for forgiveness, But please know that the certainty of retribution for the wicked is a horrible truth to be experientially learned. And what I'm trying to say to you is Judges 9 is there so that you do not have to learn it experientially. You can learn from Abimelech and Shechem's mistake. You do not have to learn it experientially. Go to Jesus' forgiveness now before the day of retribution arrives for in that day it will be too late. Which brings us to the final point of significance, number three, and that is this. Judges chapter 9 demonstrates our need for a good and gracious king. The last verse of the book of Judges, as I tell you every week, anticipates a monarch. 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What you have in Judges chapter 9 is a brief foretaste of what life would look like if they actually had a king. And by the way, Abimelech isn't like a real king. He's like this, this self-appointed king. But, 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 if, but if they were to have a king, this is what he would be like. He would take the title to himself, and he would not be kind to the people that he's ruling over. So I think Samuel wrote the book of Judges. If I am living in the days of Samuel and I have read the book of Judges and I read chapter 9 and I see how badly things turn out when someone is appointed as a king and I hear my God saying, you don't need a king, I will be your king. I'll tell you the last thing that I would do. The last thing I would do is I would go to Samuel and I would say to him, give me a king. I I would not beg the prophet Samuel to anoint a king, but that is exactly what the people did in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Then all the elders elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, here's what we want you to do for us. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord, Yahweh, said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. They want a king? Fine, we're going to give them a king. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me 
from being king over them. In other words, Samuel, don't take it personally. It's not you they're rejecting. They are rejecting me. In closing today, I want to point out, ironically, the many parallels between Abimelech and Saul, the first king of Israel. You know that Saul uh, was not only the first king of Israel, but he was a really bad and wicked king. Samuel, the prophet, rebukes Israel for demanding a king, and Jotham, the son of Gideon, the youngest son, is a prophet, and he condemns Shechem for anointing Abimelech as their king. God sent an evil spirit to Saul. God's put an evil spirit between Abimelech and Shechem. Jotham, the youngest son, is hunted by Abimelech, and he has to hide, and David, the youngest son of Jesse, is hunted by Saul, and he has to hide. Both Saul and Abimelech ask for someone to finish them off at the ends of their life. Both of them die in a battle. Both of them died in shame. The story of Abimelech screams to future generations, you do not want nor do you need a king. God is your king. He will take care of you. There is no reason for you to want to be like the nations around you. And Israel rejected the story of Judges chapter 9. They rejected the warning from Samuel and they demanded a king. And they got Saul, a wicked monarch. David is the next king that comes along. He is more in line with God, with what God wants as a king. But even David falls short. Word comes to David and says, one of your sons is going to be a king that's going to rule forever. David probably thinks it's Solomon, but it isn't Solomon, it's Jesus. You see, the book of Judges anticipates a king who will rule with power and justice and mercy. And that king is not Abimelech or Saul or David, or Solomon, or any other ruler. That king is Jesus, who is the good and gracious king. And so now, would you please consider with me how Saul was like Abimelech, hang in there, but Jesus is unlike Abimelech. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus didn't arrange to have his brothers murdered, but Jesus saved his brothers. Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He died in place of his brothers. Abimelech hated his brothers and he had them murdered. But our good and gracious king, Jesus, allowed himself to be murdered in place of his brothers. Abimelech got assistance from Baal. Jesus, the good and gracious king, trusted in God. Abimelech set fire to his own people. Jesus, the good and gracious king, saves his people from the eternal fire of hell. Abimelech shamed the legacy of his father, Gideon. Jesus, the good and gracious king, always did those things which were pleasing to his father. Abimelech tried to avoid shame at the end of his death, at the end of his life. His brains are hanging out. And, and the, the only thing he can think about is shame. So he says to the young man, would you please kill me so that I don't have to endure the shame of being killed by a woman? By contrast, our good and gracious King Jesus embraced shame at the cross, died publicly, died naked, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus wholeheartedly takes the shame and drinks it in. Jesus' entire death was, was nothing but shame. He's very different, very different than Abimelech. Abimelech needed assistance to die. He needed to be pierced in order to die. Jesus, the good and gracious king, the good shepherd, laid down his life. No one took it from him when they pierced him He was already dead. Abimelech had his head crushed by a woman. By contrast, Jesus, the seed of the woman, the good and gracious king, crushed the head of the serpent at Mount Calvary. Abimelech reigned poorly for three years. Jesus, the good and gracious king, rules over all creation forever and ever. Amen. You see, Judges chapter 9 shows us more than anything else that we need a good and gracious king. Yet, 
We, like Shechem, actively seek out inferior monarchs. We seek pleasures and people and philosophies and ideologies and idols to rule over us. And we say to sin, be my king or selfish pride, be my monarch or to lust, rule over me or to greed, reign over me or to this world, I bow before you. And all of them are Abimelechs. Everything this world has to offer you is an Abimelech. What you need is a good and gracious king, and there is only one good and gracious king, and he is Jesus. He's the king who died in your place. He's the king who rose and who reigns. He is the king who offers peace and joy. He is the king who intercedes or prays for you. Not even in my notes. Listen to this. Do you think that Mayor Adams or, or, or Joe Biden or Aaron Judge, the home run king, any king, do you think that any of them are praying for you? Jesus is praying for you. The good king is praying for you. He's the king who offers abundant life. The good and gracious king offers eternal life. We need a good and gracious king. We have a good and gracious king, Jesus. Do you know him? Have you submitted to him? Is he your Lord? Father in heaven, we love our Abimelechs. Lord, I don't know why, but we love them. Oh God, please give us the discernment to see them and to reject them. and Help us, Lord, please, to... Seek the king who is good and submit to him. Thank you that our king loves us. Thank you that our king is alive. Thank you that our king helps us. Lord, would you by your spirit give us the good sense to submit to the good and gracious king. In his name we pray, amen.